You are listening to the Boise Dev Podcast. Jessica Flynn, the founder and CEO of Red Sky PR, joins us on the Boise Dev Podcast. How are you? I'm doing all right, Don. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm well. So we're doing this remote uh, as just about everything in society is being done this day, uh, in in these days. So I can see Jessica, you won't be able to see it, but we can have a conversation here and we're going to talk about some of her work and uh, some of the things that she's done. But I always like to start with the path that people take to where they are. And you have uh, an interesting path and maybe it's just because it's got some similarities to mine, but I think it's interesting. Uh, Tell me where you, where you started and uh, what brought you to Boise? So I am technically a Boise transplant, though I've been here 20 plus years. My family dragged me here my senior year of high school. Um, so I wound up going to Boise High and graduating in the mid 90s when Boise looked a lot different. I, I left one of those kids that wanted to get out and get away from the small town and went and got my journalism degree and worked in Austin, Texas and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania as a TV news producer. And I wound up back in Boise by my own choice. I, I say I'm a, a born again Boisean and a boomerang. And I wound up back here in 2000. And that is actually when you and I met in those early days when I came back to work in the TV world here. I went and was the executive producer at KIVI for a couple of years. I was actually thinking when uh, Old Chicago closed, I was like, I think that's the first time I ever met Jess Flynn was at Old Chicago. Yep. Lots, I, of, lots of media memories for most members of the media that are there. They're in the RAM, I feel like. So yeah. So you so you end up back here and you're EPing at, at Channel 6 and you did that for a number of years. What made you say, time to try something else? And what was that something else? It's probably really familiar to media members who may be listening in, but a lot of times to move up, you move markets. And I always thought I'd stay in Boise for a couple of years and move on up to say Seattle or Portland market. But this thing happened that I didn't plan. I fell, I fell in love with the town and my family was here and staying here. And I met my now partner, my man Panyon, as I call him, who's a Boise <laughs> city firefighter and wanted to really stay in this place and figured if I didn't stay in journalism, what else could I do? And journalists were storytellers at our core, and there's lots of ways to tell stories. So I moved into public relations and worked at an agency in town for a couple of years. And then at that time, my one of my big clients hired me, and that was Tamarack Resort. So this was right around 2004 um, when Tamarack was just starting. And then in 2006, they hired me in-house, and I was there for about two years, so till 2008. I remember being up at Tamarack in that time and flipping on the TV in one of the rooms and there's Jessica Flynn on television at the resort explaining all the great things going on up there. It, it was definitely surreal and it's a journey that I think a lot of journalists wind up making when you move into public relations or corporate communication. You're used to being on one side of the camera, but then you're turning around and how you're storytelling, having to be on the other side. So it, it took a little bit to get comfortable with for sure. So then you made another probably even bigger leap and you left the warm embrace of a paycheck every two weeks and a W2 at the end of the year and uh, worked together with some folks and started your own business. What, what made you want to do that? I will say that contrary to what, what might exist out there is the myth of I, I made a move at the right time is the, the reality of the fact that this was early 2008 
I had three other smart public relations practitioners that I was talking to, and we were all just riffing about that this market needed a strategic PR firm. This market's always had some really great creative and advertising firms, but unlike bigger cities, we didn't think that there was a, a public relations firm that that was their core offering. And we were talking about it and trying to plan. And then in early 2008, this thing happened with the economy that impacted a lot of businesses, including destination resorts. So my job disappeared at the end of February, and we launched our PR agency, Red Sky, right in March of 2008. So while I can't say that what's happening now, anybody is familiar with what's happening in our world and our economy, that that um, that tough times and tough economy and the recession and everything that we're facing, that's kind of how Red Sky started. We had to start lean and mean and pretty nimble just based on how things were working. And so Red Sky now is kind of a veteran in the market. You've crossed more than 10 years. You've have been in what three locations, I think. And um, so you've sort of been around the block a little bit. What do you advise clients when they are trying to steer their business through these kind of choppy waters and they may have crisis communications issues or they may have employee communications, things that they're trying to work through? How do you help them navigate in such a changing time? Things that we advise clients and peers and partners as you're trying to navigate through times like this is to really first start with kind of a plan and a purpose to how you're communicating. And that sounds, you know, all well and good because of how quickly things are moving. But every time you communicate, there should be some key purpose or North Star to that communication and why you're putting it out at that time. And what we keep talking about to a lot of people that a lot of us may forget when things are moving so quickly is leading from the center. And that is how are you communicating to those closest to you in this moment? And those are your employees, your staff, your partners, your vendors, those stakeholders closest to you. So much of what we're seeing people do now is focus on external audiences first. So that's customers um, and potential clients. When the reality is we need to start at the smallest concentric circle around us because those individuals can help make or break our communication and they can also be the best ambassadors for you. Or if they don't feel they're being engaged or um, understood or spoken with and engaged as much as they'd like to be, they can really damage your brand by not helping to share the message that you want out there. So who's an example of somebody who takes that start from the center approach, whether it's, you know, maybe it's one of your clients or somebody you've seen nationally, who do you think does that really well? Oh, you're trying to get me to name names here. This one is really tough to think about. I think what we're really seeing are the organizations that had strong internal communications infrastructure and have recognized through their values that those people are just as important as their paying customers may be, were naturally set up to do this first. I also think we've got some great uh, associations out there that either represent groups of business or industry that by the very nature of them focusing on their stakeholders first, and I'll give props to Downtown Boise Association and Visit Idaho groups that we work with and also partner with for really looking at, yes, travelers and visitors, they're so important, but our stakeholders, the people that we represent, how are we helping and communicating with them first so that they feel supported and empowered to do what they need to do? So those are two of the groups out there that we're seeing take some good steps. So let's maybe talk about that. 
you, it's an interesting time in Boise and, and, uh, I was just downtown again today to get my mail and it's real quiet and it's really quiet at a lot of places in town. In fact, there's data out there that says that people are really following these stay at home orders, but we will eventually get into some sort of recovery and a what's next. What do you think that organizations and community leaders and, and business leaders like yourself can do to really help us build uh, a future for Boise that's as prosperous as it's been in the past? think it's going to be really interesting to see what our next normal is. And to some of the points that you've made earlier, it's very hard right now to predict what comes next. I've been sitting on endless podcasts and webinars of people in different industries trying to figure this out. My hope is that we'll see an ongoing behavior change in how we think about the ecosystem around us and the businesses around us. And I see a very high focus and a lot of social conversations around retail and restaurants and how are we all supporting them. But I'm also encouraging people to not just think of retail and restaurants, but the nonprofit sector, the cultural components, and B2B services. How, as we begin our recovery and come out of this, are we going to change our behavior for who we do business with to focus on those that are that are kind of in that buy local mindset and really think about where we spend our dollars? It's been really interesting that our behavior has almost changed without us knowing it, that what's easy and quick and convenient is how we've purchased things or stock services. What's happening now is is causing us all to almost take a take a beat and take a second thought and think about, okay, I could order that frame online from some national entity, or I could take a little bit more time and figure out how to get that picture frame locally or how to get that particular food, food stuff or those supplies locally. So that is part of my hope. For small businesses and for our community, I do hope that this ingenuity and nimbleness of how everybody has tried to adapt how they provide service keeps going forward, that we don't kind of fall back on the way we used to do things, but take what we're learning and seeing now and apply it for how we grow going forward. So are there lessons in here? I mean, you've seen and and you can look at the example of a restaurant, a restaurant who maybe um, there's a like I drove by uh, Capital Cellars downtown and I've only eaten there a couple times, but it's a it's a kind of a smaller restaurant that's focused on lobbyists and political types. And um, and they've got a big banner outside that says, you know, curbside takeout. So they had to pivot their business. And they're just one example of, of hundreds, but they had to completely pivot their entire business, their entire model, and figure out how to do it on the fly because of a crisis. But are there things that businesses can do to figure out how to take the best of that DNA and apply it even when times aren't so tough? Yeah, we. I was just having this kind of discussion with one of my team members who is having to juggle a bunch of different things. And I said, think of all the different skills that we're learning right now, because that's I'm talking more soft skills than the hard operational things that people have had to change and do. I think what people are having to focus on with businesses, and that would be a real good thing for us to continue to do, is figure out the multiple different channels through which people can Buy and, uh, buy and engage our services. Whereas we may have been used to one thing, take the restaurant, for example, they come in, they sit down, they pay, they go away. 
Well, now there's curbside, there's potentially delivery. I think Wild Plum, which is a catering and food service, has been doing a really interesting approach to some of this where they are putting together baskets that feature local producers. They're also creating supper, uh, family suppers for people to take away. So they've created different product lines and different service lines that would be really interesting to see if they keep those going. So it's almost in some ways opening up new revenue lines for these businesses since they've already put like the logistics and the infrastructure in place of how to get those products in and then how to sell them and push them out. You know, at Boise Dev, I've been trying to put together, you know, lists of restaurants for takeout and places that are doing gift cards and, and really trying to focus on that local business angle for people to make it easier. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, I needed some grass seed, some patch grass seed, and, and I ordered it through Amazon. And I would have traditionally gone to Zamzo's. And it's because it's just the friction is very high to, to use those local businesses. Um how do you think that when we come out of this, we can help people not get that used to that ordering from a national player, but to go back to their old ways? And, and what kind of mechanics do we have as business leaders to help do that? As business leaders, I think awareness and amplifying what's possible is one of the, the best ways. So the storytelling and the anecdotes of here's here's a delivery model that we should be supporting. And and I think we're starting to see this from some of our local state and hopefully national leaders of, this is what's happening to our small business community, which is the backbone of this economy. How do we all get together and continue to support them? To your point, some of the things that you've put together on Boise Dev, we've been sharing out far and wide, and I know other groups are leveraging some of the grassroots crowdsourcing that you're doing. And I think that's been the most interesting thing to me, this crowdsourced problem solving of I need X service or where should I go to eat tonight? And it's it's kind of going back to what we all hoped social media was going to be in the beginning, um, (laughs) where people come together and provide solutions. I think it's a really interesting question of what businesses can do. And I'm really hoping our business associations and our chambers and our economic development groups and our city leaders perhaps all start talking about this now as we plan for the recovery of how do we keep some of the positive aspects of this going and keep dollars in our community to support these small businesses. So you are a federal appointee to the National Women's Business Council. I think that was last year that you first joined that. I think we had coffee at like the morning before you were doing that or the morning up and you didn't tell me until the end of the coffee and then you walk off and you're like, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm like, seriously? Like what? That's a big deal. So you, you've been doing this and, and obviously that's a really big thing right now. Tell us what the council is doing and, and what they're trying to do to help support businesses. Yeah. So the, the national women's business council is the only independent voice and advisory council representing the nation's 13 million women-owned small businesses. And so our role is to provide policy policy input and advice to Congress, the White House, and the Small Business Administration for issues that impact small business ownership. 
So for instance, last year when the council came and held a round table out in Nampa in uh, coordination with Senator Risch, we heard from rural owned businesses that were identifying that they have real gaps in infrastructure. So everything from broadband to even last mile um, connectivity for cell service and how that was restricting their ability to grow and sell online. And the other infrastructure need was lack of affordable or just lack of childcare and what that means for or businesses whose employees may not be able to work as much or the different hours that they like due to lack of access to childcare, to businesses that don't um, scale and grow. And to the point about scaling and growing, one of the stats that when I joined the council shocked me the most was that 41% of the small businesses in the U.S. are woman-owned, which is fantastic. And I believe wow. it. trillion in receipts, you know, how much revenue they're making. However, 90% of women-owned small businesses are what are called non-employer businesses. So there's just one person in the business, the founder. If you think about that, think about if a woman-owned business could hire one or two or three employees, what that would mean for the growth of their revenues and their impact on the economy. So as we look at what's happening now and we think about What are some of the businesses that are being hurt so badly right now? Well, a lot of them may be service businesses like those non-employer businesses, whether it's a a hairstylist or a nail salon or an esthetician or um, an artist. And that's where a lot of my concern comes from for small businesses, that women-owned businesses have been on a growth trajectory. It's been some of the highest percentages of small business growth has been among women-owned businesses and particularly um, minority women-owned businesses. And is this going to set that growth back? One of the, so the thing that started the National Women's Business Council is this um, uh, women's business ownership uh, legislation back in 88. And it also established the Women's Business Center program. Now, Idaho's had kind of a checkered history with having a women's business center. We just got one back this past year, led by a dynamo of a woman named Diane Bevins. And the Idaho Women's Business Center is where I would direct all women-owned businesses to check in and sign up for their alerts, check out their website. It is Idaho Women, I want to say it's .org, I should know this off the top of my head, IdahoWomen.org. And to the point that If you are not a woman and you have a small business and you want information, they're not going to turn you away. You have access to all of that information as well. But the women's business centers are getting funds and support from the Small Business Administration to really help small businesses understand how they can take advantage of federal relief from the CARES Act because it's complicated. And if you need somebody to counsel you through that, that's what they're there for. So, what can we do to support um, businesses that might, we think might be struggling? Hairstylist is a great example. They can't cut hair. What can we do to help support them? Yeah, I was joking with my hairstylist the other day, but I'm going to follow through with it. Is I had an appointment. Your, your audience can't see me, but I have a fairly short haircut. So, I need to get this hair cut probably more often than somebody with longer hair. And as I told my stylist, I said, hey, I know that we're not going to meet in person. I'm going to still pay you what I would pay you for my appointment. I would love if you would give advice 
to my partner on how he can maybe cut some of the back of my hair or shave some of the back of my hair. <laughs> um, but when I asked her, you know, what can people do to help support service uh, jobs? She said, it's, you know, it's really interesting because on one hand, if people go ahead and say, buy a gift, gift card or gift certificate, that would be great. But then when we all can get back together, you're going to have to deal with kind of the crush of um, needs for those services. And how do you schedule that? So I think it's keeping keeping your appointments, perhaps trying to buy um, prepay for an appointment now or prepay for part of an appointment now. The thing I think that's really helpful is to reach out to these folks and ask, how can I support you? Because I think they're all going to have different answers. Um, this kind of is in the same realm, but I've been seeing a lot of our gyms and yoga studios do these very gracious things of live casting and broadcasting some of their classes, which is great. We can get those live on Facebook or Instagram, but some of them are now saying, hey, if you want to do it on Zoom, it's going to be this you know, amount of money. And I think making that choice to figure out how you can support them, even though they're making a lot of their um, a lot of their services and classes available available for free. How can you really support them and pay for one of those classes or maybe every other class if your if your own situation doesn't allow for every day? It's interesting because the company that provides the uh, payment platform for Boise Dev is a company called Pico, and they are. Um, not pivoting, but they're really focusing on that exact use case where you can use their platform to integrate and do those Zoom classes or do those online things. So if anybody's listening to this and is like, oh, I wish I had that, it's really easy to use and I can point you in the right direction there and I'll just give a plug for them. I pay them so they're not paying me. But um, you know, th- there are ways to do that. And I think people can figure that out, especially right now. It's that pivot, right? How can we adjust? So if if the other thing you mentioned and you it's part of your story starting a business in a tough time if there's somebody who maybe was laid off or maybe is furloughed or is in a position where it's it just doesn't make sense to work in traditional uh, traditional work environment what advice would you give them about making that leap especially when things are a little uncertain well it is a fantastic question, and I don't say that a lot, right? <laughs> but <laughs> what is happening now is really shifting our emotional and mental response to everything. And to put a silver lining on that, it's op- it's also opening up new pathways to think about old problems. And we're seeing there's a different need for different types of services. And I would, I, I know that I have what they call synapses of fury. And I think about all these random ideas out there. And I think for folks that may have that opportunity or considering maybe I should start something new to first start looking at what are the problems facing us now that need to be solved? And what are some of the creative ways out there that my skill set could tap into that? I do also really appreciate that a lot of learning platforms in different industries are offering up free webinars and podcasts. And that is one thing that I'm really trying to keep up on, taking advantage of that and reading that to kind of help keep my keep my sanity and be thinking about different ways of doing things, but also have a connectivity to other people because afterwards there'll be times when I can have chats with individuals that way as well. 
I do firmly believe that necessity is the mother of invention and tough times is, I'll, I'll give it to the mother again, is, uh, is the mother of innovation. And when we have to be nimble and we have to be streamlined, it helps us really focus in on what matters because we don't have the privilege of having a lot of infrastructure around us. We have to be really focused. So some great ideas can come out of this. My advisor uh, during my fellowship year said something to me that I think about a lot, um, which is, uh, you are not lazy and you are not stupid. You will be fine. And I always think about that. I think that applies for most people. Like if you're willing to work at it and you've got some capacity, it generally will be okay. I know a lot of people seek you out. I think I sought you out when I left Channel 7. I know other people have. And you usually give pretty good advice. So if somebody was sitting down with you today and saying, I'm, I'm laid off or I'm leaving, what's the first thing I should do, Jess? What would you say? I would say grab a blank piece of paper and go somewhere that you feel you feel the most free and open with your mindset. So for me, that's kind of sitting in my hammock in my front yard. For mm-hmm. others, it could be with a glass of wine in a really comfy chair. But be somewhere that you're not consumed by the rapid pace of news and the stresses of that. And on that blank sheet of paper, start really thinking of how to define and share all the value that you have. Because every single person that's listening to this and that's out there has different values and skill sets. And when we take, I guess, the the hard boundaries and structure and framework off, this was my job, this was my industry, that's all I can do. It can help us free our minds a little bit to think of what's possible. Um, you've probably heard me do this exercise, Don, and I just shared it with some folks yesterday. I call it the one, one, one exercise. If you had one word or one phrase and one sentence to describe yourself and introduce yourself, what would that one word, one phrase and one sentence be? And you can't use your name and you can't use your job title. So my, my one word is almost always storyteller. My phrase is either paranoid pragmatist or, or synapses of fury that tells you about how I think and why I think a certain way. And then my one sentence is an accidental entrepreneur who through the, through the, the stress and learning of growing and keeping a business thriving has really moved into focused on running small businesses. Like that's what I love. So I think the brevity and the clarity that that can bring is really important to understand what your value is and therefore where you can go with it. So when you talk about being a paranoid pragmatist in your own business and in your own uh, travels right now, what does that lead you to think about what you're going to do next and and how you're planning for that next stage? I'm not asking for anything, you know, operational or or planning, but just in general, what, what are you, what are you looking at? Yeah, and I'm going to flesh out the paranoid pragmatist component because I've, I've always said that and people kind of smirk or and then I learned the phrase defensive pessimist. The mindset that I always have is waking up or looking at a situation and being like, oh, that's interesting. What could go wrong? And then how do I plan for each of those eventualities? And I bring that when I talk to clients a lot. I just read a McKinsey article that I love that talked about um, having uh, bounded optimism. And I thought that was fascinating. And it was bounded optimism and deliberate calm. And the deliberate calm is kind of 
you know, the calm in the eye of the storm mentality and, you know, detaching a little bit from the craziness of the situation and trying to think clearly. And then the bounded optimism is about confidence balanced with realism. Because I think we all know, like we look outside in the world and the people that are excessively optimistic about what's happening right now, you may lose a little trust or they may lose a little credibility because we all know the situation now, right now is difficult. So what is that bounded optimism? So if I kind of combine all those, what I'm doing as a small business is looking at, okay, based on what we're hearing and seeing from industry experts, based on what we're seeing from different economic models, looking at the makeup of my client base, what could be a potential loss in revenue? What could I assume in different phases I might see over the next three to six months? And then how will I recover that, work through that based on operational savings or applying for loans? And then how can I respectfully and sensitively pursue and find new business? Everything that we're doing right now is being seen through the lens of there is a massive situation happening in our community, in our state, in our world. No decision and no communication can be made without factoring that in. So we're really trying to take steps to be thoughtful and respectful, but proactive in how we position ourselves to provide work. Let's talk lastly about tourism and Boise and this state. And obviously, tourism isn't a thing right now, not just here, but anywhere. Uh, the lowest number of enplanements since 1980 uh, yesterday as we taped this. So it's not happening, but it will again. In the new world that we'll come into as we exit this pandemic, what do you think gives Boise and Idaho an edge in inviting people to come here and enjoy our state? Boise and Idaho, and this is all parts of Idaho, I think are going to have an edge based on what we're seeing from um, modeling and the predictions and the assessments of where people's mindsets are going to be as we slowly come out of this. And that is, yes, there will be a pent up demand for travel. There will be a focus and a demand for domestic travel versus international travel. And there is going to be a lot more probably embracing of travel by car or by um, public transportation or other transportation besides flights. So I think Idaho historically has seen that a large number of our visitors have come in from drive markets. And in the West, as I discovered after moving here, people consider a day's drive coming in for eight to nine hours. So, so what we consider a drive market is pretty broad when you look at the circle around the map. I do think that Idaho's um, brand of kind of wide open spaces and natural outdoors with approachable and accessible but not overcrowded urban centers are going to play very well when people consider where they're going to go. In some ways, we're fortunate that we don't have a super, super dense urban center where people psychologically and emotionally might shy away from that right now. I do think um, Visit Idaho, who full disclosure, we do work with, they're just kind of launching some uh, language and information around, you know, the hashtag see you soon in Idaho. We know you're staying home, staying safe, and we support that. And that's for both in-state travelers and out-of-state. And we're thinking of you, and we hope you'll keep thinking of us. So plan now, 
travel later. So it's really trying to give people the services and the visuals and the information so they can plan and dream now and then come see us when when everything is, when people are safe to travel again. And boy, people are thinking and dreaming about it right now. I think when you're a little pent up and maybe a little cabin fever, it's like, boy, what? My wife and I talk about what we would like to do when this ends, and there are a lot of options. Jessica Flynn, founder and CEO of Red Sky PR, I appreciate you taking some time and joining us on the Voicey Dev podcast. Thanks for having me, Don. I appreciate it.